easiest thing in the world to do is to be the father of a great athlete. Rick Pitino goes absolutely bat blank crazy. We made Rafael Davis of the Big Ten Network literally cry last night like little crocodile tills, tears. Tony Romo, he ain't having it from you critics. People tell Tony they like him. Hey, Rick Barnes, big win yesterday at Kentucky. Rick's going to join us, the coach of the Tennessee Vols. We got a monster for you. And it's Monday of Super Bowl week. Don't at me starts right now. Look, I I don't know how to tell you this, but the easiest thing in the world to be should be Patrick Mahomes Sr. You played in the Major League Baseball for years and years and years. You were a good enough player. You had a lot of respect. You have a lot of guys that you played against that know you, love you, organizations wanted you. Then you have a son. And he becomes the arguably greatest football player of his generation at quarterback. He got everything. What has he got? He got fame. He got personality. He got looks. He got sensibility. He's empathetic. He's just a really seemingly good guy. He married crazy, but hey, a lot of people marry crazy. A lot of white women out there that are crazy trying to sniff around athletes. He caught himself an interesting one. But you're the dad. You're the dad. This should be easy. This should be no-brainer. You act like a patriarch. You act like Del Curry, even though Del Curry had to have affairs and do, honest to God, maybe it's just a thing. I don't know. But you just act above it. You're the mentor. You're not like Usher, like uh, John Morant's dad, the idiot trying to be in the crew, yo, The idiot trying to be one of the thugs, yo. And if that's racist to you, tough, because I saw guys, Ryan Clark on ESPN, use thugs so we can use thugs, so screw you. Anyway, it's easy, Pat Mahomes Sr. Go be a guy. Don't be Otis the Town Drunk. And if any of you have seen the Andy Griffith Show, you know who Otis the Town Drunk is. Otis the Town Drunk is the guy that walks around town drunk, and everybody likes him because he's Otis the town drunk. Well, in Mahomes' case, he's Pat Sr., the town drunk. He got his third DUI. Not one. Not two. Third DUI. Now, look, I'm guessing, I don't know anybody's finances, But I'm guessing, just guessing, that this dumbass here has enough money to take an Uber. Maybe an Uber black. I'm guessing, just guessing, that this dumbass here has some real problems. Like, look at him. He got a whole lot of crazy looking in him. Good for him, man. Hey, I ain't mad at anybody with a whole lot of crazy in him. But crazy, arrogant, and stupid is no way to go through life. I used to say it about basketball players. Dumb and arrogant is a killer. Smart and arrogant, you're at least smart enough to know that you're arrogant when it's hurting you or when it's helping you. But dumb, arrogant, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life. And this is fairly serious. Under Texas law, listen to this, a conviction would result 
in two to 10-year prison stretch. Now, is he going to go to prison? I don't know. I don't know, man. Hey, look, for rich dudes, Harvey Weinstein going to jail was a shock to the system. I remember when Harvey Weinstein was going through that, I would read, you know, all these different articles. And, ah, he's rich. Ah, he'll get off. Ah, he won't go to jail. Ah, he went. There's an old saying, I guess you can add Harvey Weinstein to it, but if they'll fire Bob Knight in Indiana, if they'll cut Peyton Manning with the Colts, and now if they'll put Harvey Weinstein in jail, they'll put your ass in jail, Patrick Mahomes Sr., and it's sad. And this is why... This is why I always say, this is one of the reasons, why I always say about the Super Bowl and other major events, don't bet them until the day before because you never know. There was a player, his name was Robinson back in the day. He was the Walter Payton Man of the Year. He was at the Super Bowl. Night before the Super Bowl, he gets busted. Busted for soliciting a hooker. That is Walter Payton's style. But hey, good for him. He's out. Cornerback. Falcons, dirty birds get beat. Night before the Super Bowl, Brett Robbins. He's all bipolar. He's all whacked out. Important starting center, Oakland Raiders. Goes AWOL. Night before, leaves, gone. I can't remember whether the Oakland Raiders won. I'm betting they didn't. So now, Patrick Mahomes got a deal with his father. They don't seem as strange. They don't seem close. They just seem. And that's the way fathers and famous sons should be. They should just seem. The dad should just be there. But the dad, if you notice, in recent weeks has been a little more visible. And our friend Jason Allen Hammer nailed it the other day. I wish I would have, if we could find it, I wish I would have found it. I wish I would have told you guys to find what Hammer had to say about Mahomes' dad. I think he called him a dirtbag. I think he called him all kind of stuff. I totally forgot. Hammer and I were texting. My next text should have been, hey, look, boom. Boom. Play Hammer. But anyway, he called it with this dirtbag. So this is number three. He's lucky, obviously, that he didn't put people's lives in danger. But why do this to your son? Hey, look, you're out, you're drinking. I get it. I get it. You're an ex-athlete. You're a big guy. You're out. Hey, when I got divorced, it was on. I mean, on. Stories legendary about me out in and around Indy. That's right. That's right. This was a second chance. I had a blast. I'm not going to lie. Lee was screwing around. She had a boyfriend. I was trying to get that boyfriend away from her, but she was in Syracuse. And I'm like, hey, so I get it. I get it. You get around 48, 50, I think is what I was, and I'm out having a ball. I mean a ball. Hey, Dan, you want to go? Yeah, I'll go. Hey, Dan, we're going. I'm in. But I always rode my bike. I did. Weird. And I always rode it, and I stayed close to my house. True story. Unless I was going away for like, you know, I was going to Bloomington, and I never drove because my kids don't need me in a mugshot. They don't. They don't need that worry. My kids don't need it. They don't need the the humiliation. Neither do yours. So you ride a bike. Did you know you can get a DUI on a bike? I didn't. I do now. And if they gave it to me, I would say, look, what can I tell you? But I'm going downtown. I'm riding my bicycle. I'm going to have a few beers. I'm going to laugh my you-know-what off, probably play some cards. 
and I'm riding my bike back. Man, the kids don't need the humiliation. Well, guess what? Right before the Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes got to deal with this because Patrick Mahomes has a problem that apparently he won't get help for, and he continues to make the same mistake. Shame on you, Patrick Mahomes. At some point, it ain't always about you. At some point, mommies and daddies, it's about making damn sure you protect your kids, period. Tony Romo says people like me. No, they like me. I've said this always. As a broadcaster, one of the things that you can never really get caught up in is going to the grocery store and people saying how much they enjoy your show. I mean, they see you there. They want to talk to you. What are they going to say? Seriously, what are they going to say? I don't know. What are they going to say? Hey, Dan, I hate your show. I've had a couple people do that, and then they scurry away like little rats. I've had people look at me, side-eye, under-eye, cross-eye me. I get it. Everybody gets that. Not everybody's supposed to like you. It's the world we live in. If everybody liked you, this would be the land of the Oompa Loompas. And this ain't the land of Oompa Loompas, but you can't listen to people that come up and talk to you about it. Tony Romo has been awful. Now, has he been as awful as Twitter has said? No. Tony Romo got on the wrong side of Twitter, which isn't a bad place to be. But, but more importantly, it became not only a narrative on Twitter, but it became a narrative on CBS. And CBS, by all accounts, had to go tell Romo, look, you're not preparing. You sound unorganized. You're not having chemistry. Straighten up. See, here's the deal. I don't care whether it's broadcasting. I don't care whether it's sports. When guys are in their contract year, they do better. We've seen it in baseball forever. I mean forever. Tony Romo was in a contract year. Tony Romo was calling out plays. Tony Romo got the bag. Tony Romo, after he got the bag, hasn't done squat. He's lived off reputation. And a little smile and a little beard from Miami Vice circa 1983. And we all go, oh, gee, he's so cute. His analysis has been horseshit. His, his uh, preparation, and this is stuff that I know. Like, I'm sorry, I'm not guessing here. I did this for 10 years and was the best ESPN, according to uh, Norby and the boys at ESPN, were the best they ever had doing games. So this is something I know. I can tell when a announcer is prepared or when an announcer is winging it. I can tell when somebody has really studied. And Romo used to really study. Romo used to know. Now Romo just grunts, groans, makes fun, acts above it, and then walks away laughing and goes to dinner and buys a big bottle of red wine for him and his wife. But Romo doesn't believe that. And I don't blame him. Here's what Romo had to say. It's a normal arc of someone's career. Honestly, I think a lot of people are rooting against Patrick Mahomes because he's been there. They want to see new people. It's just part of an arc where you do something at a very high level. I think that's normal. Same thing happens in football. You become dominant at things, and then all of a sudden people are like, okay. Then at the end, Tiger Wood come back, everybody roots for you. It's just a normal arc. It's not abnormal. It's absolutely what's supposed to happen. Well, that may be true. I'm not saying you're wrong. Absolutely. People get tired of those on top. I deal with it every day on a very small level here at Indy. I got haters left and right. 
Hell, we made some hater named Rafael Davis cry yesterday. He used to play at Purdue. Now he's a Big Ten Network reporter. We just simply said, look, how about guys shut up and let John Beeline talk on the set? Made him cry. Haters came out. That's all right. I'm the king. People, people stand on my shoulders and act tall. It's the same thing with Romo, except it's not. Romo has become bad at his job. And whatever he wants to do and however he wants to spin it, there is no spinning being ill-prepared. There is no spinning being above your job. There is no spinning for mailing it in once you get the bag. You've seen it. A lot of you say it all the time. Hey, Bellinger for the Cubs, he's in a contract year. Man, he's going to have a big year. What does he do? He has a big year. It's no different in broadcasting. Romo, contract, oh, man, I'm going to be really good. I mean, look, this stuff for a guy that played quarterback or a guy like me that coached and played ain't hard at all. Being an analyst ain't hard at all if you have any common sense. Now, it's hard for some guys because they're idiots. But if you're not an idiot, if you're a normal human being, if you went to college, if you have a brain, if you have a vocabulary, if you can think on your feet and you can articulate your words, well, that was pretty fast right there. Then this stuff is easy. But you can always tell, I can anyway, when somebody hasn't studied, when somebody hasn't put the time in, when somebody's only just put a cursory effort in, and when somebody, forever, for whatever the reason, lost that proverbial edge. And that's what Romo has. Is he right about the arc? Sure. We love to tear our sports stars down. How fast was the media to pump up this young African-American golfer named Tiger Woods? Every white dude in the media fell all over themselves. Every African-American in the media made him out to be the next MLK Mandela, just like his father had said he would. I get it. And then what happened? Then Perkins waitresses came. Then the old nine iron to the back of the car. Then the old driving intoxicated under the influence of pain pills. And guess what happened then? How quick that same media lost their ever-loving mind to not only criticize, but to judge, examine, and act as psychiatrists. It is the normal arc. No question. You take some time off, you come back, and now Tiger Woods is seen as a godfather, a grandfather to players. Same thing with Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant's a a rapist. You can say whatever you want. Dude's a rapist. I know his agent. I know the details of what happened in college. He's a rapist, period. He was going to jail. He paid the woman off. Lucky for him, the woman accepted it. And then he decided, begrudgingly, but he decided, for the most part, to change his life around. And then what happened? So the media that was not fawning over Kobe early, but became fawning, then crucified him. And then they realized, wait a second here, we better get back on the Kobe train, because Kobe ain't going nowhere. Now, somehow, some way, Mamba mentality isn't about raping somebody in a resort in Colorado. Mamba mentality is about hard work. What? What? And girl dad, of all things, of all things, is now associated with a rapist, Kobe Bryant. That simple. 
Say whatever you'd like. Everybody's afraid to say it. There will be a day, maybe, maybe, when the woman that got raped speaks out. But, again, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the arc of a career. The arc of a career was everybody loved him. He got on top. Rape charges. He got on bottom. Time away. Buy my wife a massive ring to make her stay. Buy her everything she wanted. Buy off her affection. Become an icon. It's amazing, really. Mamba mentality is about hard work, not rape. The world is nuts, and Romo ain't wrong. There are arcs in careers. It is amazing. Uh, Rick Pitino has every reason to go off. He does. Every reason to go off on the NCAA. 2013, Pitino feels like he was slighted. His team won a national championship. Guess what? It got taken away. Woo-woo people are still pissed. Make no mistake, Patino still pissed. Hostile. Really hostile. I mean crazy hostile. Like not even a little bit. He is hostile. Well, well, guess what? He, Patino, came out with this now about something different. The enforcement staff. Same, because he's pissed at the enforcement staff, but he said this about NIL. Enforcement staff needs to go away. We just need to stop all the hypocrisy of NIL. We need to stop it because they can't stop it. Whether I'm for it or against it does not matter. These are professional athletes, Rick Pitino said. Getting professionally paid, Rick Pitino said. It's not going away. Boy, is he right about that. You can't try to get loopholes because they take you to court. That's why I say and I'm not knocking the enforcement staff, they're going to get taken to court every time they try to make a rule. It's a tough time in college basketball right now, and for us, you can't really build programs and a culture because everyone leaves. Let's add to that. Everyone leaves. Why? Everyone leaves because of money. Guys aren't leaving. Cam Spencer isn't leaving Rutgers until he realized that, wait a second, two things are in play here. I can go to UConn and not have to sit out, and I can get a hell of a lot more money playing basketball at UConn. Now, UConn, according to everybody except maybe me, is the best team in the country. They may be, but Purdue's right there, particularly after the win yesterday. But the fact of the matter is, You go where the money is. Have coaches done that for years? Sure, but not really. Coaches have gone boom, boom, boom. I can't win a national championship at Bowling Green, so I want to go to West Virginia. Eh, I can't really win at West Virginia. There's another level. I want to get to Indiana. John Beeline went from Canisius to West Virginia, West Virginia to Michigan, got to the national championship game. That's the way it works. It is money. There is money involved. You do make more at Michigan. Don't get me wrong. But it's not really, truly about the money. It's partially. I didn't go to West Virginia for the money. I went because, well, I could get in the Big East. I came back and it became about the money because I left half a million dollars a year at West Virginia and went back for 100000 at Bowling Green. That was really financially stupid. Morally perfect. Financially stupid. But anyway, Patino's not wrong. 
Here's the deal. In the NCAA right now, everybody knows. They know that guys are going to school because of financial incentive. Is that the way it was set up? No. It was set up so that Trace Jackson Davis, after a great freshman year, next year, go get yourself some car dealerships uh, money. Go get yourself some ad money. Name, image, likeness based on performance. Now, it's name, image, likeness, yeah, but it's, look, here's the bag. Here's how much we're paying. Let me know if you want to come. Well, I got an agent. I'm a player. I got an agent. I go back to the school and say, look, I got your bag. I like your bag. It's great. But this school over here offered me 20 grand more. You come back with 30 grand more, I'm in. I'm yours. You got a choice. That's the way it's working right now. I don't like it. I don't dislike it. I personally don't care about it other than to talk about, here's my solution to it. Just say, screw it. Everybody gets a contract. You're getting a contract. You leave, you pay back money. Same contract, everybody. Make them employees. I don't care. Make them contracted employees. Here's the deal. My contract, people always equate it to the real world. My contract said this. When I left Urban One on December, whatever, 7th, 8th, whatever it was, I had a year non-compete. The year was supposed to start in March because Urban One, unknowing to them, unknown to me, had to pay me for 90 more days or 60 more days. I guess it was 60. So we compromised and went to a one-year non-compete. I had to sit out. Okay. January 1st, 2024, I'm back. Same as a college kid. Same as what it used to be. It used to be a college kid had to sit out a year. And then they would say, well, that's not a real world. Well, it is a real world. It is to me. It was to me. It is to people in broadcasting. The non-compete will get you. But Patino's not wrong. And what Patino is saying is there's nothing these folks can do about it. Here's what you do, contracts. You come to our school, here's a contract. However, make it a standard contract, make it whatever you want. Put people on contract. Take out, take out whatever you need to take out. Take out taxes, take out FICA, take out whatever. Pay them Social Security, pay them unemployment, pay into whatever. If players and the player advocates want it to be the real world, then make it the real world. Simple. I don't know. But again, the NCAA, the easiest thing in the world to do is blame the NCAA. And I'm glad at least Patino said their hands are tied. Yeah, because when you go to court, guess what? Done. They never win. Ever. It's like St. Bridget's sixth grade in Hobart, Indiana. They never win. They never get the W. So anyway. Good for Patino. And I like that Patino's coming back hot. I like that he's running hot. I do. A running hot Patino is good for sport. A running hot Patino is good for basketball. More Patino. That St. John's UConn game in the garden was electric. It was. Man, it was like guys were just screaming in the stands for two hours. It was. It was electric. My boy, Nick. He's in a bar in Connecticut. He sends me a video. It's electric. 
So good for Patino being back. Good for Patino raising hell. Good for one of the last of the guard of the Shashevskys, the Roy Williamses, you know, the Jim Bayheims. Good for them. By the way, did you know Patino worked for Jim Beheim? Almost got fired on his honeymoon for cheating. True story. Uh, Le'Veon Bell. Look, this I don't understand this story with Tony Schnell. I'll read about it and get back to it. Le'Veon Bell. Le'Veon Bell is not giving up. I tell you this all the freaking time, don't I? Don't I tell you this all the time? It's always the same, guys. These idiots quit. The team is bad. The team sucks. The NFL sucks. I'm going into boxing. Okay, Le'Veon, you go into boxing. Goes into boxing. I don't know whether he's good or not. Don't care. But you know what they say. Leave them alone, and they'll always come back. Let me explain to you. When I was getting divorced, when I got divorced, I was trying, hoping, trying to woo the lovely Lee Ross Dockage. She was in Syracuse. I was in Indy. She had a boyfriend. I was snaking around. Long story short, we went back and forth. Finally, she's like, look, I got to finish this out with this guy. You're 12 hours away. I'm finishing it out. I was heartbroken. I've told the story before. I sat on my couch and I ate 17 dreamsicles. That's right. 17 dreamsicles sitting there on a beautiful day in the spring going, huh, why am I more heartbroken over this woman that I barely know than I am over my wife and mother of my kids who divorced me after 22 years? I went to the garbage can, I threw my dreamsicle stick in, and I looked, and I'm like, huh? 17 of a 24-pack I ate. I'm like, well, that's enough. I'm going to find me a woman. Called up a couple buddies, went to the Salty Cowboy. Next thing you know, I'm dating a gal. Nice gal, lawyer gal, fun gal, great gal. But she ain't Lee. I got a choice. Here's what I do. I start reading up. Pathetic as this sounds, how to get a woman back. I knew the answer. Let her go. Let her fly. One text equals one month, it said. If you send any kind of text, hey, just thinking about you, that means one month that she will have on you. So I did nothing. Zero. And guess what? She came back. Same thing with athletes. Same thing with employees. Same thing damn near with everyone. Le'Veon Bell whined, bitched, and moaned. And Le'Veon Bell, they let him alone. Nobody came. Nobody came. It was like that episode in Seinfeld when the Pakistani restaurant opened. Nobody came. And Le'Veon Bell was left to try to, well, put Le'Veon Bell and Le'Veon Bell's brand in front of folks as something other than a pathetic loser at 31. So he's back. Here's what he had to say. I won't start training until March, and I'm going to be honest with myself. I got to go out there, and I'm going to put my foot in the ground. Can I go out there and really play again? I'm telling you right now. When I go out there and train in March, and if I hit April, and I make the decision to come back to play in the NFL, mark my words, I will only come back for that one team. You know who it is. I don't got to say no team. I guess at some point, 
few years ago, that would have been like, wow, wow. Le'Veon Bell, wow, we're really excited to see what that team is. Yeah? Why would anybody give a rat's now? I'm going to assume, you can assume as well, I don't know, you can assume that that one team is the Steelers. Who? Who? Who cares? Le'Veon, baby, your ship has passed. Le'Veon, baby, you kind of suck, but you do you. Uh, I like this. I, I like this. 50 Cent. 50 Cent is going scorched earth. 50 Cent is starting to echo what many are starting to echo. Trump be the man. Trump be the man. What does that mean? That means, well, tr- maybe Trump is the answer, is what 50 Cent said. After New York City, listen to this, gives out free prepaid credit cards to illegal migrants, taking to Instagram is what 50 Cent did, and expressed his frustration over the misuse of taxpayer money. Now, let me see if I can make you understand this. What the... Call my phone. I don't understand how this works. Someone explain. Maybe Trump is the... Of course Trump's the answer. We work hard for our money. And where does it go? Ukraine. We work hard for our money. Where does it go? $5,000 prepaid cards. Honest to God. $5,000 prepaid credit cards. Walk in the country illegally. Here's your $5,000. What? That's where your and my hard-earned money goes. You may not think that this job is hard, but I'm telling you, the first 40 minutes, I got to go, and it it makes me puke every day. The lights are hot. My ass is hot. My knee's killing me. So I don't give a damn whether people think this job is hard or not. I give a damn that my tax money doesn't go to some illegal freaking immigrant that's coming into our country illegally. You come in legally, let's go. I'll help. But you can't, of course, Trump is the answer. Of course, rounding up, getting rid of, because it's only going to get worse. I guarantee you right now in India, you go somewhere, you're going to see a bunch of illegal dudes with their little credit cards out. I've already seen two right here in India. We're not very close to any border. I mean, I guess you can go north, you can go south. Uh, There's borders, there's east, there's west, but we ain't very close. It's coming to your neighborhood. I want to ask my neighbor who has that sign about nobody's illegal. I I told him the other day, I said, why don't you put that sign back up? That way, when these illegal immigrants start running around our neighborhood, they know to go to your house, not mine. Now, is that mean of me? Yeah, it probably is. Is that Christian of me? Nah, it's probably not. But what can I tell you? Is Trump the answer? Well, maybe not. But I got to tell you, this ain't the answer. You tell me, you look me in the eye, Gritty, or anybody else, and you tell me that our tax dollars going to $5,000 prepaid credit cards for dudes walking in the country illegally, that's a good use of our tax money? That's a good use you're going to say to me? Yeah, I don't think so. I think it's crap. And I think it continues to be crap. And I don't want to hear about nobody's illegal. Of course they are. 
They're not illegal as people, you dolts. Illegally coming into our country makes them illegal in our country. Yes, we are all gifted by God. Yes, we are very lucky to be in this country. But I don't give a damn what anybody tells you. I don't. There's a way to come in this country. There's a way to keep this country safe. There's a way to keep this country secure. No different than your grandfather or my grandfather or your great-grandfather or my great-grandfather. Whoever the hell came in, went to Ellis Island, signed up, made a life for themselves. But it does not involve the $5,000 prepaid freaking phone call, and it does not involve just letting people run all over, come in on boats and run into our neighborhoods in California. That's called an invasion, not immigration. And you can't have a country if you're just going to be invaded all the time. And make no mistake, this ain't the neighborhood priest and nun and deacon that's coming into our country. No, it's not. No. Not even sort. Of course Trump's the answer, you idiots. He was the answer the last time when uh, the borders were shut. He was the answer the last... And it'll be the answer this time. It's just a matter of whether or not Democrats have cheating figured out. Whether or not we acquiesce to the fat ass that's sitting there saying, man, I can't go to the poll. That's the only thing that matters. Polls don't matter. The only thing that matters is how rigged is this election. And have the Republicans figured out how to participate in either de-rigging it or rigging it for themselves, period. Uh, college hoops over the weekend. Look, be careful with that whole, just a little bit. UConn's the best team in the country. I think they're the best team in the country. And don't act like it's not close, because I'll tell you right now, Purdue going into Wisconsin, into the Kohl Center, where they've won like 90% of the time, a jacked-up crowd, a, Saturday, a Sunday afternoon, students out in full force, and Purdue up the whole game. It's a good game early. Purdue took it out. I'm going to give you two things. One, Zach Eady is the defensive player of the year. All you got to do is watch that game, and don't watch the ball, you dummies. Watch the action. Watch the game. Watch how many times somebody runs away from Zach Eady when they've got the ball and a chance to score. Watch the influence that kid has. He is the defensive player of the year. He's also the national player of the year. When in doubt, throw it to Eady. Purdue's got a nice squad, man. Braden Smith, dynamite. Ren Kaufman, getting better. Mason Gillis, perfect for his role. They can bring Morton in to defend at other time. Uh-uh. Purdue's a squad. And this Lance Jones, man, is he good. Mm-mm-mm. He really good. UConn whooped up on Rick Patino. It's going to be a year from now. I'm going to write this down, where Rick Patino's team, assuming Rick Patino is still there, is going to be a top-10 team. Patino's team will be a top-10 team this time next year, February 5th. By the way, congratulations to me. I made it the entire month, January 4th to February 4th, no alcohol. Eh, there have been some pain pills involved, but what are you going to do? No alcohol. That's a pretty good thing. Anyway, Patino's team playing in the garden, St. John's, loud, crazy, let's go. UConn handled them. Back and forth we go, back and forth we go, back and forth we go. And then Patino's team just, they couldn't hang. Too much. Too much by UConn. UConn and Purdue, America's best. Uh, 
Indiana basketball sucks. It sucks. I mean, I hate to say it. Indiana has been the shits since I left in 1997. They've had one good year, 2002. That's it. When I left in 1997 to go become the head coach at uh, Bowling Green, Indiana people had no idea all that I did for Indiana basketball. Between keeping Coach Knight from getting fired to handling all of the recruiting, Knight wouldn't go recruit, but handling every damn thing involved in the program, basically the only sober one on staff, other than Knight. Knight was very sober, never drank. But the fact of the matter is, Indiana people always say, Doc, it's you're just bitter because you didn't get the job. No, I go the other way. You Indiana fans should be bitter that I didn't get the job. You Indiana fans should be bitter that I left and went to West Virginia for 75000 because I had to get out of it. That's what you should be bitter about. We got a coach in Indiana named Mike Woodson. Mike Woodson coached in the NBA a long time. He was a nice player, scored a lot of points in Indiana. His team won the Big Ten title in 1980. He was the most valuable player. Only played in nine games. He was hurt with his back. I said a year ago, Mike Woodson is incredibly lazy, incredibly political, incredibly entitled, and frankly, inept. I said it in a long post on Twitter. His daughter got mad. The sleazy, skeezy, weasley, indie star columnist said that the daughter went off on me and good for her and I'm wrong. Fast forward a year. And this always happens in my life. Indiana gets beat by 20 in the second half to what? Penn State. Who? Without their best player, Penn State. Where was the game? Penn State? No. Assembly Hall. Big crowd. All of a sudden, a little Weasley, skeezy, uh, little slimy writer for the Indy Stars writing an article about Woodson. Really? Team quit again. And I'm disgusted. I got a show uh, from 12 to 3 on 1430 here in Indy. And I'm just going to go off for about three hours. Just go bat blank crazy. You know what I'm saying? Just have a day. You know, I don't root for much. I root for Indiana State. No, I don't. I root for Illinois State, my son's team. Tough loss. I root for Indiana. That's it. I don't root for much. And I root for the Cubs. Colts have tired me out. But God dang, Indiana, you suck. Man, I hate saying that, but it's true. We'll be right back. We got we got Quinn uh, Glo- Glo- Glover Quinn from the Lions next. Man, I'm fired up. Sack the hell up and don't go anywhere. Don't at me. We'll be right back after this. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. 
Glover Quinn, let's get serious here. Glover Quinn, let's get serious. 2014, you're in the Pro Bowl. You're synonymous with the Detroit Lions. The Detroit Lions have a great year, but Dan Campbell makes some decisions. Where are you relative to the Dan Campbell decisions? You know, I mean, you got to live with it and you you got you got to ride with it, you know. Um some of them you like, some of them you don't, but you can't, you know, go back and forth and choose why well, I didn't like this and I like that when you either got to like it or you don't. So, I'm a Dan Campbell fan, and sometimes it works out, sometimes it don't. Um, obviously, we're all looking and, and remembering the last situations in that in the NFC Championship game, the the key fourth down calls and and the running the ball on in, at the end of the game. Um, you know, if they work out, it's great moves, great calls. When they don't work out, everybody questions it. So, um, the first. The first miss kick, I mean, not miss kick, but just going for it on fourth down. I mean, you catch the ball, you keep moving. You know, you don't catch the ball, it's like <laughs> a failed conversion, right? Um, the last one, that was the only one I had a question about because you're losing the game, right? You're losing the game 27-24, and it's about six minutes left in the game. So at that point, I think you go for the field goal and, and try to tie the game up and at least ensure yourself uh, – you know, if they go down and get a field goal or a touchdown, you should have last chance to either get a touchdown or a field goal in that sense. But going for it right there, not getting it already down three. Now, if they go and get a touchdown, it almost puts it out of reach by, you know, being down 10. So that's the only one that I would say I probably would have just went for the points right there to try to tie the game up. But um, at the end of the day, if you're executing on third down, catching the ball when you're supposed to catch it, you're not in those situations. I got to years ago you played pretty recently okay so Glover when when you're the analytics have really changed like I'm guessing when you came into the league it was a no-brainer we're down we kicked the field goal we can make it a three-point or a three-score game you kicked the field goal right I mean analytics has changed all of that and I think you know maybe fans need to catch up Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely feel like the analytics are changing things, but I also think as a coach, you got to understand and, and, and have a feel for the game, you know, depending on how the game is going, how your team is playing, how they're playing, the momentum of the game. Um, you got to be able to make decisions and, and, and not solely rely on the analytics. Um, there are situations where the analytics say go for it because the chances are this or the chances are that. But when you look at that NFC Championship game, that whole second half, your offense hasn't scored the whole entire time. Um, they have all the momentum. You were up by 17 at the half. You come out, they've cut that lead and now tied it up within seven minutes or so in the third quarter. Like, it's just field goal, touchdown, touchdown. So I feel like you got to do something to kill the momentum, man. Even if it's just kicking a field goal, putting three points on the board, you're just trying to kill that momentum. So the analytics right. does the analytics doesn't understand the feel of the game. The analytics is just saying, "Oh, in this situation, this is what you do." But you're there. You're the coach. You feel the game, so you have to coach the game based off of how it's going. And so sometimes the analytics 
has to be put to the side based off of how the game is going, how your team is playing, how you're executing, the look that you get in their eyes when they're coming to the sideline. All those different things come into, you know, how I call this game, not just what the analytics say go, so I'm going to go. I don't know if you can see me, but I was nodding my head like I was in church with you. Like I was going to raise my hands and go, hallelujah. Uh, Glover, I coached for 25 years, Indiana basketball. I mean, I, and that's exactly the deal. You come in with a plan, but it ain't, it changes. It's organic and away you go. So let me ask you this. When you, when you look back, like Andy Reid is, you know, Spagnola and and uh, uh, whatever Kyle Shanahan, the best coaches change up. Who has a coaching advantage, if anybody, in this Super Bowl? Ooh, I mean, when you say coaching advantage, you know, I I don't know if anyone has an advantage. If anybody, I would probably have to say Andy Reid. Um, he's been there. A long time he's 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 you know very experienced on this stage but he also has a quarterback in Patrick Mahomes and so um when you got a guy like that you're gonna go off one what he's saying you're gonna trust how he's feeling um and so it's hard to it's hard to lose when when you got a guy like that um I will say you know playing against a guy like that it's tough, man. Those quarterbacks are good. They can control the game. They understand what's going on. And so when you're coaching those guys, you're you're kind of letting those guys lead the way. You know, they're out there on the field. They're understanding what they're seeing, how they're feeling, their comfort zone, what they think is open. And so, yeah, you go into a game feeling a certain way, but once you get into that game, you realize how they're playing you, having somebody that's experienced, that's paused, to be able to come to the sideline, communicate everything, come up with a different plan. Hey, they we 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 thought we were going to be able to attack them this way, but this is what they're doing, and immediately have an answer and to have that trust in him to say, "Boom, let's do that." I think you have to give that advantage to to the Chiefs and and Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. How difficult from a what are the is are there specific things? Let me ask it this way: Are there specific things that you, as a safety, have to look for when playing against Mahomes? Um, you know, specific things. I would say at this point, the way their team is made up, probably no. And a few years ago, when they had you know Tyreek Hill and they had a real real deep threat I don't feel like they have a real deep threat like they used to have and so it's a lot more controlled passing right now a lot of underneath routes with Travis Kelsey finding little holes in the in the zone and continuing to move the chains um getting a big play here there but I don't think we've seen the big 70 60 70 yard passes and touchdowns that we generally see from that team because they don't have that deep threat of a guy and so as a safety at, at this point now, you know, you never want to let the ball get over your head, but I don't think I don't see them taking as many of those shots. And so when you're playing against a guy like Patrick Mahomes, you just don't want to get greedy and get get low to sleep as a safety. And now you want to get a part of the game and you start to try to bite up on some of those short underneath routes or those, 
intermediate routes because you want to make a play and then you allow something to get behind you. So I think that would be the biggest thing, staying true to who you are, staying patient, allowing the guys underneath to make the plays that they should make and you staying ready for that one play or that two plays that they do attempt to take it up top that you're there to make a play. Is that kind of the same thing uh, about Purdy, too? I mean, Debo Samuel, deep threat, is, is that a little bit similar or no? No, I don't, I don't think Debo Samuel is a deep ball threat like that. I think Debo Samuel is better in the, in the short game. He's very good after catch. Um, he's almost a running back playing wide receiver. So I think they really want to get the ball in his hand as quick as possible and allow him to run. I don't think we see Debo Samuel run past guys as much that they tend to use Brandon Ayuk and some of those other guys for those deep shots and things like that. But I think for, for, you know, Brock Purdy and, and Debo Samuel, they want to get the ball in his hands right now, put him in the backfield, throw him a screen pass, hand him a jet sweep, get him a quick slant, a dig route, something so he can catch the ball moving forward, running and use his uh, great after catch run ability. I don't think he's tall enough, big enough, or, or I don't even know if he's fast enough to consistently run past DBs in his league, but he's definitely physical enough and has a great run after the catch ability to where if they can get the ball in his hands quickly, he can make stuff happen. What do you expect out of the running game for both teams? Um, I think, you know, obviously when you look at the 49ers, they're going to lean on Christian McCaffrey. You know, I don't think they want to put the game in Brock Purdy's hand. I think Brock Purdy is a good player, and I think he does a great job in his role with that team. Um, but when the focus is on Christian McCaffrey, uh, George Kittle, you know, slowing those guys down, that allows Brock Purdy to have some favorable matchups. And if you look at the Detroit game, he was able to get out the pocket, and he really hurt Detroit in the second half with his legs, just being able to run for key first downs, uh, scramble, stay alive, and then hit good passes. You know, so that right there, being able to lean on Christian McCaffrey, lean on George Kittle, lean on Debo Samuel and, uh, you know, those guys that that helps Brock Purdy out a lot. You know, when you look at Kansas City, I think Patrick Mahomes is their guy, obviously, but they're going to run it with Pacheco to to keep you honest, to make you feel like that we can't just key in on Patrick Mahomes. We're going to keep you honest because Pacheco, you know, everybody talks about his running style and how he runs, but I guess he is effective in the grand scheme of thing. But I think he benefits a lot from the Patrick Mahomes effect. I remember back in the days playing against the Peyton Mannings, playing against the Aaron Rodgers. They got a lot of too high defenses, a lot of light boxes because you're trying to keep the, the big plays off of you in the pass game. And you're putting the pressure on your linebackers and your D-line to stop the run. So you're getting a lot of light boxes. So Joseph Adai, um, you know, Eddie Lacy, a lot of those guys are benefiting from that. I'm not saying they, that they're not good players in their in their own right. But they're benefiting from those light boxes. So that's what you see a lot with Pacheco. People go into the game feeling like, hey, if Pacheco runs, that's okay. We don't want Patrick Mahomes to, to beat us in this situation. And so when you look at the 49ers, they want to stop Christian McCaffrey, and they want to force Brock Purdy to beat you. So it's kind of two different philosophies that you're looking at right there. All right, I got to ask you this. I, I, I just got to because this drives me crazy. As a coach – in basketball, I'll be like, all right, we're going to take away the best player. How in the hell, and you're the perfect guy to ask, how in the hell is George Kittle and Travis Kelsey so 
freaking wide open in the middle of the field. How are they so wide open? Because it's 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 the guys that that are having to to guard those guys, and it's what you call the run pass conflict. You know, when you're a linebacker, um, you have run responsibilities. When you're a safety, you have run responsibilities. And so when they use those guys correctly, you know, you're you 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 have a run gap. And so they they know how to block and make it look like they're blocking. Then they release, and all it takes is one step. Um, and they they scheme it up easily and they scheme it up properly and when you look at some of these guys you know they they are faster or you know better than a lot of the linebackers that they go against and then they're bigger than a lot of the defensive backs or the safeties that they go against and so when you look at the way that you play some of these guys like i said with patrick mahomes you're going to get a lot of zone defense because you're just trying to you know slow him down you know he's very good in man coverage identifying this man he'll take off running on you and obviously he's very accurate in his passing so when you do that now you're playing man-to-man or you're playing zone and travis kelsey is really good at finding open spots in the zone because you're not necessarily just playing him man-to-man it's a zone and so when when you have that time and that understanding they're going to find an open spot in the zone and he's going to throw it and he's going to be a catch um, when you look at the 49ers, if you're playing man to man against a George Kittle, he's faster than you think. He's bigger than most DBs that he's going against. He's faster than the linebackers. And then the fact that you have Christian McCaffrey who kills you in the run game, those linebackers have to respect that. So when they do play action, those linebackers bite up. And now you got George Kittle running wide open and it's difficult. It's a run pass conflict. And that's why it's important to establish the run game. You know, when those linebackers have to respect the run game, it makes it easier for those guys. And so Christian McCaffrey, being the type of player and the type of runner that he is, you definitely have to respect him. And that causes uh, a, a domino effect and it's going to allow George Kittle to get wide open in the middle of the field. I'm going to use run pass conflict and act like I'm smart because that sounds really good, man. That's a uh... – that's pretty damn good. All right, who wins the game? Who wins the game? You know, at at this point, I'm gonna say I'm I'm gonna pick the uh, the Kansas City Chiefs. You know, I I think the 49ers are are a tough team to beat, obviously, um, but it's just really hard for me to go against Patrick Mahomes. You know, he's just good, man. He's he's good. He know how he knows how to win. <laughs> He knows how to win. He knows how to control the hey, game. Hey, let me. Can I ask you? Can I ask you something about that though? So his dad gets arrested. The, the distractions factor in in this is you know, uh, does any of this factor in other than for a guy like Mahomes that's so focused? Does any of this factor in? Nah, Mahomes. It, it has nothing to do with Mahomes. That's that's his right. dad. I mean, he's been dealing with distractions, right. you know, from his brother. I mean, it's his dad. I mean. He, he, Mahomes is a different guy. You know, he's going to go out there and put all that behind him. And he's going to go win the football game. Um, at least he's going to go and try. And so, you know, Mahomes understands the 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 chance that he has uh, to be considered probably one of the greatest ever. You know, he's been to six or seven, whatever it is, consecutive AFC championship games. And, you know, he's been to now, what, three Super Bowls or four, whatever it is, having the opportunity to win multiple. Like, he's on a historic pace, and, and I, don't, I don't think he wants to 
you know, let this one go to waste. You know, they they played the 49ers in the Super Bowl a couple of years ago and beat the 49ers. And I think he wants to go out and do it again. And so I think he'd be locked in. You know, I, I don't think uh, the distractions from his dad being arrested from, you know, whatever. I don't think that's going to bother him at all. Hey, last thing. I was a big fan and a big advocate and became kind of friends with Jim Caldwell. I thought he got screwed here in Indianapolis, like big time screwed. And it really pissed me off. And Jim was always great. Coach was always great to come on with me. We, we became kind of buddies, that kind of thing. He got screwed too in, in uh, Detroit, didn't he? Nice guys get screwed in the NFL, my opinion. I don't know what I'm yeah, talking about, but it's my opinion. A lot of times, for sure, you know, that's just just how it is, you know. Um, but that's life, too, though. You know what I'm saying? Nice guys get, yeah. get screwed over in life. You know, yeah. people, you see it, you hear it all the time. People take your kindness for weakness, you know, and, and that's yeah. just kind of the way it is. Um, obviously, I love Jim Caldwell. He was a, you know, great coach. Um, and sometimes, you know, things like that happens. And it helps moving forward because people understand that they made a mistake. You know, I think, I think they realized that, you know, with the, with the era that they went through with Matt Patricia um, and Bob Quinn, just, you know, thinking that they were getting something that they, they really wasn't. And so wanting to get it back to, you know, what we had established with coach Caldwell, um, somebody that believed in, in, in the, the, the the city and the 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 fabric of the city hiring dan campbell um he brought you know the grit the the toughness uh the city and he had a connection to the city to the team he played for detroit he understood what it was like and so sometimes you know yeah they it might have happened for coach caldwell in an unfortunate way but it was a lesson learned you know, by the the Detroit Lions and, you know, they were able to get it right and stick with Dan Campbell through the rough, you know, first year and a half or so um, and give him a chance to, you know, get it, get it to a respectable level. And, you know, he was able to do that and the team has responded and, and now they're, you know, they've, you know, hit the playoffs this year, made it all the way to the NFC championship game. And so it'd be interesting to see how they, they approach this offseason because next year the expectations are are higher. And that's the thing about uh, the NFL. When the expectations are low, you know, making the playoffs, getting the home playoff game, like, cool, that's, that's a great season. Now you've been to the NFC Championship game. Now you start getting to the situation where it's like, hey, man, we're trying to get back to the NFC Championship game and get to the Super Bowl or it's not looked at as a successful season. Um, and that's tough. And so we'll see how the offseason go. Hopefully they can have another great offseason and, and be ready to, you know, run it back, as they say. Thank you, man. Appreciate you, Glover. Thanks. That was great stuff. Hope you'll come back. That was fantastic. At any time, man. Just let me know. Thank you. I will. That was good. That, that, I learned some stuff. I did. I did. I mean, he his point about Kittle and his point about Kelsey are so good in the – the run-pass conflict, I'm stealing from him because that's just really smart stuff. Like, that's just really smart stuff, and I ain't that smart, and I'm trying to be smarter. But I learned right there. That's what I love. I love the fact that our show, we get guests that are going to tell you stuff that's real, not some bullshit. 
right, uh, 12 uh, 10.30, Rick Barnes, head coach at Tennessee, coming off a win at Kentucky. You know, the thing about beating Kentucky is nobody ever says how great Barnes' team is. They just talk about how bad Kentucky is. We thank, we thank Lover Quinn. And when we come back, more good stuff. Wow, that's pretty good. That's it. I got to take a break. We'll be right back with more on Don't At Me across the Outkick Network. Breaking news. I'm fired up after that talk. Rick Barnes going to join us coming up at 1030. Breaking news. Steve Belichick, long-haired, mulleted son of the great Bill Belichick, has now officially, according to Field Yates, accepted the position of defensive coordinator with the University of Washington. 12 years, Belichick Jr. He's not Belichick Jr., but he was with the Patriots. He called the defensive plays for the last five years, including 2019 when New England allowed the fewest points and yards in the league. So good for Belichick Jr. Look, I'm for everybody. Everybody get jobs. I want every I want everybody happy. Sad news. You know who Carl Weathers is? Carl Weathers, well, Apollo Creed in the greatest, maybe the greatest movie ever. Like, I gotta tell you, you know how first impressions are the most lasting. Well, when you're a kid, and this goes way back to Rocky One. I know there's Rocky 100, but when you're a kid and a movie comes out. And you get to go see it. And it's sports. As a little kid, I cared about sports more than I cared about life itself. I just did. Maybe I still do. I don't know. But here comes out Rocky. And you go to the movie theater. And you and your friends are at the movie theater. And you're chanting. And you're screaming. And it's the greatest experience. Because, well, it's really the first time you've seen this. It stays with you for a lifetime. People can say to me, what's the greatest movie ever? And Rocky One is always going to be at the top, maybe the top. I love The Sting, same thing. I thought The Sting was unbelievable. I don't know what year it came out. I was like 12. But I was mesmerized because I like gangsters. I like gangster movies. I like mob movies. I like prison movies. I like boxing movies. I just do. Well... Apollo Creed was one of the great characters ever, and Carl Weathers played him. And Carl Weathers was, I think, I haven't really researched this, but I think he was based, his, his guy, on Muhammad Ali, brash, fast with the hands, fast with the feet, ripped, good-looking, handsome, charismatic, commercials, women, the whole deal that Ali had. And I got to tell you, I got to tell you, I rooted I did. I rooted for Apollo Creed over Rocky. I understood the movie, but when I watched, I know I'm just a little white boy from Maryville, Indiana, but I like The Flash. I loved Ali, and I liked Frazier. I liked them both. Actually rooted for Frazier because I wanted to see him fight like 100 times, but man, I was sitting there while all my buddies were rooting for Rocky. I was rooting for Carl Weathers. I was. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was awesome. I thought it was life-changing. Man. And then as Rocky went on, I got tired of all of them. A little bit. I did. Rocky II was great. But then, you know what? I didn't even watch the one with that Tommy Morrison. But rest in peace. Carl Weathers passed away. 
Carl Weathers did what we're all going to do. And unfortunately, as I get older, it's starting to come to people that I grew up watching, loving, my own father, that kind of thing. But, but, Sylvester Stallone, who, by the way, Tulsa King is really good. Does anybody have any idea what the hell happened to Tulsa King? Tulsa King was fantastic. I love Tulsa King. It was on Paramount. I haven't seen Tulsa King in forever. But anyway, Sylvester Stallone, here he is, about his foe, friend, whatever, Carl Weathers. Hello, everyone. Today is an incredibly sad day for me. I mean, I'm so torn up, I can't even tell you. I'm just trying to hold it in because Carl Weathers was such an integral part of my life, my success, everything about it. I, I give him incredible credit and kudos because when he walked into that room and I saw him for the first time, I saw greatness, but I didn't realize how great. I never could have accomplished what we did with Rocky without him. He was absolutely brilliant. His voice, his size, his power, his athletic ability, but more importantly, his heart, his soul. It's, it, it's a horrible loss. And I'm standing here in front of this painting because it was probably the last moment we were ever in the ring together and I'll never forget it. He was magic. And I was so fortunate to be part of his life. So, Apollo, keep punching. Yeah, and you know what? He, he was great and happy. Gilmore as Chubb. He, I just liked him. I don't like everybody. Look, I didn't care about Drago. You know how you can go through the list. But I loved that movie. I still watch that movie. There are a couple movies from the day that I'll still watch. I'll watch Airplane 1 and 2, and I'll watch Rocky 1 and 2, and, of course, Godfather 1 and 2. But Apollo Creed, man, rest in peace. Mm. It sucks. I'm just going to tell Side note, off script, it sucks as you get older seeing so many people die. Look, I know when I was younger so many people were dying, but I didn't know them. Now you're like, oh, man, Paula Creed's dead. I don't like it. All right. But people go to a better place. I truly believe in God. I believe in heaven. If you do, great. If you don't, great. That's up to you, but I do. Uh, Rasheed Rice seems like a really nice kid. He's the stud-wide receiver who has really showed up big for the Kansas City Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes. Hey, do we have a look? I think we do. At what his neighbors did as a send-off for him headed to Vegas for the Super Bowl. I love that stuff. Here in Indianapolis, in the neighborhood that T.Y. Hilton lived in, he used to have his game car. He had this car. I think it was like a 68 souped up, like convertible, not Corvette, uh, Cadillac. Big fins. This is what uh, some of his neighbors told me. And all the little kids would come out on Sunday when they heard T.Y. Hilton crank that car up for a home game for the Colts. And all the little kids 
used to run out. And T.Y. had little kids, right? So T.Y.'s son, you know, he had he played with the neighborhood kids. By the way, T.Y. Hilton's son's a stud. He's starting to get offered high major in football. But anyway, the little kids would come out, and it was awesome. It was absolutely awesome. Now, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. I had a couple, a guy and a gal, uh, tell me about it. Me and a couple buddies of mine, we were having a drink one night after playing golf, and one of the guys, we just started talking about Colts players, and he was talking about what a great guy T.Y. Hilton is and about his game day car. And he was talking about how his daughter and all the neighborhood kids, I think it's aw- I think it's great. See, I heard a rumor one time in my neighborhood that the kicker for the Washington Redskins lived by us. So me and my buddies got all nervous, and we went and knocked on the door. Turned out it wasn't true. Then I heard a starting linebacker for Purdue lived over here by the Vargases, went and knocked on the door, and that was true. And I couldn't believe it. I'm that kid. I'm that little kid that would have been out there with a sign screaming and yelling for Rasheed Rice. That's who I was. I idolized people like that. I idolized coaches. I idolized anybody that was in athletics. And I love, don't like, I love that kind of stuff. Now, it tells me Rasheed Rice is a really good dude. It does. Hey, by the way, my guys just told me that uh, season two, or is it season three, I don't know, of Tulsa King is coming. They just announced it. Tulsa King is good. Oh, the heck. That Sylvester Stallone doesn't hardly open his mouth because it's just great. And then he beats the living hell out of everybody. Uh, good for Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick, oft times in New England, seemed, well, soulless, right? Well, you know, we're on to Cincinnati. But Bill Belichick, by all accounts, is a funny dude. Bill Belichick, by all accounts, is the kind of guy that isn't who he seems to be, at least who he seems to be. Public players have talked forever about how funny he is. People used to ask me about Bob Knight. Tell me something about Bob Knight that I may not know. And I always said this. Number one, he doesn't, never drank. And number two, he's the funniest dude you'll ever be around. I mean, he would make you laugh. Well, Bill Belichick showed heart here, real heart, as he unceremoniously or ceremoniously, depending on who you want to believe, was either dumped or walked away as a mutual agreement with the New England Patriots. Bill Belichick thought enough about New England to pen a letter on a billboard. Here's what he, oh, I'm sorry, in the Boston Globe. Nowhere in America are pro sports fans as passionate as in New England. And for 24 years, I was blessed to feel your passion and power. The Patriots are the only NFL team representing six states, but in reality, Patriot Nation knows no borders. He's right. They are passionate. The P-men, going back 100 years before Belichick really got him going, 97, I had an assistant coach, really nice kid. He was from Worcester, Worcester, Mass., and he loved the P-men. And I'm not Bobby Not I said, look, if the P-men are on TV, I'll try not to have practice while the P-men are on TV. He eventually, because I was too tough and crazy my first year, quit, went back. He's doing great. But hey, the P-men. Uh, it's always the same people. You know this. I know this, right? Don't we? We always know it's always the same people. Well, now it's A.J. Brown. 
A.J. Brown, the wide receiver that was let go, much to the demise, actually, of the Tennessee Titans and our friend Mike Vrabel. But he's talking. Yeah, he's talking. Uh, Let's hear. A.J. Brown argues that Brian Johnson was really the scapegoat of the team's downfall and somebody had to be the bad guy when things aren't working for a team. Brian Johnson was the offensive coordinator that was let go. And look, A.J. Brown ain't wrong. There's always a scapegoat, and the coach has to go in there and whack guys so he don't get whacked. Here's A.J. Brown. Were you surprised to see that, and, and how do you how do you respond as, as players? Um, I wasn't surprised. You know, in this league, somebody, somebody has to be the bad guy so something don't, don't go well. Um, um, but uh, – wasn't surprised, um, and uh, like I said earlier about the OC job, you know, regardless of whoever you put in that position, you know, uh, it comes down to the players and executing and making plays, you know. So um, me personally, I'm, I'm not too attached to to whoever's in the OC position, um, you know, because I have a job to do. You know, if my number's called, I got to, uh, I have to answer. So. Yeah, I mean, he's not wrong. I mean, let, let's be honest. He's not. I mean, you know, you can get attached to people, and then they're going to leave in football and basketball and baseball, particularly at the professional level. And when you're a coach and this thing goes south, guess what? That's right. It's going to happen. Breaking news, rapper Killer Mike. I bet you guys didn't know this, Nick and Nick and Dylan, was arrested for misdemeanor battery Saturday at, Sunday afternoon. He was arrested at the Grammy Awards. Killer Mike's name is Michael Render. He was taken for processing, getting in a physical, listen to this, a physical altercation at Crypto.com Arena, where the Grammys were. He was escorted and handcuffed. He had just won three Grammys. He got physical with a security guard, knocking the guard down, when they did not move quickly enough to get out of Killer Mike's way. Yes, we must get out of rapper's way. Yes, don't you know rappers are king in this world and we must acquiesce to rapper guy? Come on. Stop it. Hey, here's a little hype video. The San Francisco 49ers are taking the mantra, 49ers against the world, 49ers against all odds. Only thing is their favorite. Let's see a little hype video. Let's get hyped, yo. 49ers against all odds. Surging forward! 
I'm hyped. Uh, you want to see a guy that really wants to go kill bad guys? You want to see somebody that is dying to kill the bad peoples? Here, check out this video. UFC fighter, Renato Macano. Check him out. And after I'm done with fighting, I will serve on the police officer. I want to be a SWAT team, and I want to kill the bad guys. Make no mistake. That is right, and that is wrong. And people are forgetting about that. People are going crazy. That's why I want more kids. I want people to go to the church. I want people to respect the law. Otherwise, this great country in the world is going to be a third world country. And I don't want a dead I'm down with him. He's now my favorite fighter. Get on the SWAT team and kill bad guys. And you got to understand, if you're a UFC fighter, first off, you have body fat of zero. Zero. You're tougher than you are crazy, and you're plenty crazy, and I want you on the SWAT team. I do. I want you on any team that you want. Yes. Come on, Gritty. We want some badasses. We want alpha males. Toxic masculinity is sexy. I stole that from our friend Charlie. I got a T-shirt that says it. That's right. Toxic masculinity, sexy. Fighters, crazy, UFC, SWAT team, perfect. Perfect. Let's go. It's Monday. You know what time it is. It's stock up, stock down time. Look, I've never been a hater of Purdue basketball. I hated losing to Purdue. When we lost at Indiana to Purdue, we all got fired. I got fired a lot over the last couple of years. One time, so bad that we went and got a case of beer, myself and the two other assistants, and we drove to a lake at about 11 o'clock at night after the game, sat there till the sun came up. My wife was very, very unpleased. Bob Knight was trying to find us. He had fired us, and we said, F it. We're fired. Let's go. Good. Maybe I'll go work with crazy Kevin O'Neill at Northwestern. Maybe I'll sell mutual funds. Maybe I'll send life insurance. Don't care. Get me out of here. So that part of Purdue, I never, I didn't like. Gene Cady came into my house to recruit me. I loved him. My, co- my high school teammate, Jimmy Bullock, became an all-Big Ten player at Purdue. I liked him. Guys that played at Purdue, Greg Eifert and others, I liked them. Gene Cady later on in life, I loved them. Love them. So I'm not an Indiana hater. I went to college in Indiana. I played in Indiana, but that was 40 years ago. Guys are still making videos of me playing. Young guys are still jelly that I kicked Michael Jordan's ass. I don't know what to tell you. I'm just a guy living a life, but stock up Purdue basketball. Purdue basketball went into the Kohl Center on a day where 99.9% other teams would have lost to Wisconsin in that arena on that day. But they did. And I got to tell you, Purdue's fun to watch. A lot of people are saying it's what Indiana used to be. Yeah, I don't know. It's what Purdue is, period. And what Purdue is is a damn good time. As my friend Jason Allen Hammer says, don't threaten me with a good time. Well, it's a good time. Now, Purdue has a week off. Saturday, 8 o'clock, Indiana and Purdue at Mackey. I'm going to go to the game, I think, depending on my knee. I'm going to go. Purdue fans, 99.9% will be great. Some will cuss me. Big old Polynesian lady will call me an asshole. I'm down for it. I am. 
But Purdue basketball and UConn basketball, and I'm going to say North Carolina, even though they lost to Georgia Tech, have separated themselves up here. Those three. I'm going to add Purdue now. Chris Felica, who I talked to on Friday, I'm going to add them as the teams I trust in the NCAA tournament. I think Purdue's going to the Final Four. Bill Belichick, stock up. We just read about you and what you did with the Boston Globe taking out a full-page ad. I don't know. I hope it went to the online edition because nobody, and I mean nobody, A little ink on my fingers, a little opening the page. But hey, guess what? Doesn't happen anymore. But Belichick, you done good. Coming up in five minutes, we're going to talk to Rick Barnes. But stock up. Rick Barnes and Tennessee went to Kentucky. Rupp Arena, on one of those days, I talk about it all the time, there are some days where at Blue Blood big-time programs, you just ain't winning. And this was one of those days at Rupp. Well, guess what? They scored 100-plus, they being Tennessee. They won going away. Wow. Stock up. Stock down Indiana basketball. Look, you're up four, second half, Penn State, biggest half of the year, at least keeps you alive for the NCAA tournament, and you crap the bet. I get very pissed off. My son asked me the other day, he goes, why are you getting so mad about Indiana? I go, it's part of me. See, if people would ask me what's the one regret that I have in life, it is being too loyal to Bob Knight and Indiana. That's my one regret in this world. Should have never been that loyal. Should have never been that much invested in the program. But I am. I was. That's why 40 years later, I get so mad watching the crap that Mike Woodson puts out there. I get tired of the players. I get tired of the dancing. Indiana players have become little bitches. They dance. They make TikToks. They wear their little things. They are the exact epitome of what Indiana basketball is not, and they play like it. New York City taxpayers, stock down. Not your fault. You elected this guy Adams. That is your fault. You elected this guy Adams who decided that we are going to be a sanctuary city. Governor Abbott in Texas took them up on it. Simple. Here you go. Here's all your immigrants. You know what Adams decided? Adams decided he was going to give $5,000, that's right, 5K credit card to illegal immigrants in New York City. You know what he's given to homeless vets in New York City, veterans? Nothing. Taxpayers, you have gotten screwed. Hey, stock down Pat Mahomes Sr. Some point it ain't about you. It's like, uh, it's like diversity and LGTBQ. Sometimes it's not always about you. It's your third DUI. Your third DUI means you can do as much time as 10 years. Are you going to get 10 years? Doubtful. You're probably right now in rehab, or maybe you're going to go to rehab after the Super Bowl, or maybe you're going to tell them to stick it. I'm Pat Mahomes. I don't know if Pat Mahomes Sr. has that kind of suck. I don't. But if I were his attorney, I would have a hard time. Look, Pat, Go to rehab right now. Save yourself some jail time. I don't know if I could do that. His son's in the Super Bowl. It's a quandary. Uh, I think I would helicopter after on, on Monday morning to Betty Ford. Get it in there. Get your rehab going. I don't know if he will or not. It's a sad story, though. 
Yeah, he's got a son that you want to punch in the face, Jackson Mahomes. Yeah, he's got another kid that is the greatest quarterback of his generation, but daddy can't get his shit together. And that's too bad. I remember when, I've told you this before, when Pat Mahomes Sr. came to the Cubs, I thought, all right, man, this is great. Didn't quite work out that way, but I was excited. So I followed Pat Mahomes Sr. for a long, long time. I did. All right, we come back. Can't wait to talk to Rick Barnes. I seriously can't. It's going to be fun to talk to Rick Barnes. He's got a squad, ladies and gentlemen. He's got a big-time squad, and they went in the rough. And to quote the kids, they beat that ass. Be back with Coach Barnes at Tennessee in a minute. We'll be right back. Got to take a short break here. We are rolling with Don't At Me, and you don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Uh, Coach Rick Barnes coming off a big win against Kentucky. Coach, I got to tell you, uh, I remember the first time I ever talked to you. I always thought you were a New York guy. I always followed your career, but I didn't follow where you were from. And I swear to God, I thought you were like Patino and all those guys from New York. You called me up. You were at Clemson. And a kid named Malcolm Sims wanted to transfer from Indiana. And you were very good. You were like, hey, Dan, this is Rick Barnes. And I remember thinking, no, it's not. He's not going to have a southern accent. There's no way. I swear to God, coach, thanks for joining. But I can still, you know how you don't remember everything, but I can still remember where I was when I realized Rick Barnes wasn't a New York City slicker. How about that? (laughs) That's pretty funny. (laughs) That really is. You know, when I went to Rhode Island, they obviously made a lot of made fun of my accent. I said, "Well, because you're doing that, I'm gonna make sure I move to Southern Rhode Island," which I did. Right, right. <laughs> hey, hey, coach. Here's something that that I find fascinating. Like in Indiana, you know, the southern part of Indiana, a lot of Kentucky fans, obviously Indiana fans, Purdue's rolling. You guys go into Rupp, you score 100 points, and I'm reading the reaction, at least in my state here, and it's all about what Kentucky isn't. It's like when Kentucky loses, it isn't how good the other team is. And, you know, when Kentucky loses, nobody talks about how good the other team is. It's always about what's wrong with Kentucky. Like, your team came in, and really, I was watching the game start to finish. Your team was just better. How difficult is it to go into a place like Kentucky on a day like that? Well, you know, Dan, the first thing I would tell you is Kentucky better be thankful they got a coach like John Calipari because John, as you know, he I mean, he does an incredible job. And when you're in a, in a program where, honestly, they, they feel they should win every single game, you've got to have a, a person that's one that's extremely comfortable in their own skin, which John is. And the job he's done there, I would tell you what, I really feel for the guy that has to follow him. I really do. But, uh, but the fact is – you know, it's a great arena. Uh, the fans, they love it. And uh, and someone asked me about it before the game. You know, they've been good in every decade, I think, since the 40s. 
And uh, so I understand their expectations. I really do. But like you said, there's a lot of other good teams. And college basketball landscape has changed now where there's a a lot of teams can get competitive because of the transfer portal and the NIL. But uh, I really thought our team the other night, uh, Josiah James and Santiago Vestavi and, you know, those guys have been in there. They We've been fortunate to win in there a couple times. And both of the, I think both of those guys, and along with Eve Ponce, will leave with a winning record in Rupp Arena. And, uh, but the fact is, it's been a pretty big rivalry through the years, which I wasn't a part of. I didn't know this. You know, the first loss that came in Rupp Arena, Tennessee did it back in the day. And, you know, Bernard King told me a story one time, Dan. He said that uh, he was playing at Tennessee when he was at Tennessee. He told this to the team. And he said that uh, he was walking off the court at Memorial Coliseum. I think it was Memorial. And he said someone flipped a cigarette in his afro. And he said when he went into the press room, uh, they wanted to talk. He said, we're not talking about anything other than the fact that what someone did to me walking off the floor, I've got one statement to make. He said, as long as I'm at the University of Tennessee, Kentucky will never beat us. And they never did. And uh, But it goes back to, you know, as you said, good teams and good players can go in and and you'd like for them to be appreciated, but some places that's not going to happen. Coach, your team, particularly the Ziggler kid, look, you lost him last year. You got him this year. I mean, he just controlled – it felt like he controlled everything. Your team, the other team, the crowd, he – that's experience, right? That's experience coming out at the biggest moments. You know, Dan, you know, you coach, you've been around it a long time, and, and there's – we all wish we could coach DNA, and that's what he is. Right. I mean, actually, actually, after the game against South Carolina, we went at him pretty hard as a coaching staff because what he brought to us when he first walked on campus was something that we hadn't had in a long time – I hadn't been around in a long time, really. And uh, he walked in, you know, not being highly recruited, and, and, you know, we had Kennedy Chandler, the number one point guard in the country. But Zakai came in here. We fully thought we were going to register him. We really did. But after two days of practice, we thought we maybe should register Kennedy. And uh, But his DNA has been so much a part of who we have become since he's been here. And we told him we thought he, he had gotten away from it a little bit. And uh, But he responded he had two great days of practice where he held himself to an extremely high level of, stand, of standard and uh, got back to being a guy that was really – getting after his teammates for not doing their jobs. And and you need that. You know, I mean, as you know, you coach, you know, this the coaches that are always having to, you know, point out the obvious. And you really get good when your team, they hold each other accountable. And just simply, it can be simply as saying, hey, do your job. Just do your job. And we got that from him the uh, last three days in, in a big way. Coach, I, I don't really know you. I followed your career, and I used to tell people, I used to tell Coach Knight, um, Rick Barnes makes it look easy. We make it look hard. Like, we, in Indiana, it was hard to go get a bite to eat. It was hard to go get a sandwich. It was like everything's hard. What's the key here to you? You, you go wherever you go. All you do is win, and you get guys like Ziegler, or you pick up a guy named, like Connect. And the beat goes on. What's the key? What's the secret to what you do, Coach? Honestly, Dan, it's, it's the staff that I've been able to hire. I've always said that, hey, I can't be the smartest guy in the room. If that's the case, we're not going to be very good. And 
you go back and look at the guys that we've had that have moved on to become head coaches, they were great. And what made them great, and all I asked them to do was wake up every day like you're the head coach. What would you do to make this program better today? And, you know, I listened to them, and I'm not a big staff meeting guy because I think when you get in a big room with, with your staff, those that have a little more domineering personality is going to take over. But I do talk to my coaches every day. After practice, I, I want to hear all of them individually tell me what they think going forward. You know, obviously in recruiting now, and always I've had guys that knew that you had to go out and, and not so much recruit guys uh, – because we've had teams that weren't very good. We we recruited as opposed to evaluating what fits for us and what works for us. And uh, that's the key. And again, so much goes to my assistant coaches because they know what we how we like to do it, what we want to do. And, and uh, they do a great job of trying to get the right guys in there. Coach, how have you adjusted over the years? If you look back or, you know, you talk to family that's been with you during the whole row, What's been your biggest adjustment as a coach? You know, Dan, I will tell you, growing up, and you mentioned growing up in the South and North Carolina, I grew up in a really good home where, you know, I was taught right from wrong and never cursed, never did any of that. Uh, you know, and uh, when I got my first head coaching job, I had an assistant coach tell me if I didn't change my language, I'd never be able to relate, relate to the black athlete. And I really became something that I didn't want to be and, and uh, in terms of uh, making it about me, and uh, every time we lose, I took it personal. Like you know, I'm here, I'm being embarrassed. My career is going to falter, this, that, or whatever. And I have since gone back, and I had a, I'll tell you a story of what really affected me. I had a, a player by the name of Damian James at um, University of Texas, who was you know highly recruited player, and came in with Kevin Durant and DJ Augustine in that class, and we're getting ready to play at the University of Oklahoma. And uh, uh, Damian was really struggling. Kevin had left, and we were not playing great. And we go to Oklahoma, and I go up, and I say to the coaches, I want Damian to come in here. I want to talk to him a little bit. And so Damian came in. I said, Damian, I want you to tell – this right before the game. I said, tell me how I can help you. What can I do to coach you better? What can I do? And he looked at me, Dan, and he said, Coach, I want to apologize to you because I have not lived up to be the player that I know you want me to be. And I said, well, Damien, I appreciate that, but that's not what I'm asking you. What can I do to help you? And he looked me dead in the eye and he said, Coach, you know, I grew up around only women. And um, I've never had a male, a male person talk to me the way you talk to me. And he said, when you curse at me, it really hurts me. And I said, well, I promise you this, I will never do that again. And I haven't done that with anybody ever since. And uh, uh, I think you asked what, what what I have I done different? I think I've tried to grow personally, and you know I put a lot in my faith, and know that uh, I truly I love it that God has blessed me in so many ways with with what I, what I get to do, but that's not who I am anymore. When I made it about this is who I am, I man I, I I've gone back and apologized to players that I coached in the past because I was wrong because I made it about me, and our motto now is we call it Enom. It's not about me and. It truly isn't about me, and I've just, I'm blessed. I've had wonderful people in my life that stood, stood with me, stuck with me, and going forward, I hope I can continue to grow. Coach, how does that play in this era where kids are leaving, people want theirs, they got agents? How does it's not about me? 
And how difficult it is it to find, evaluate your word, players that want to come in and be about others? You know, Dan, I've always said this, that there's enough players out there for all of us if we just go get the ones that work for us. And that, not, that might not mean your fan base might, as you know, there are certain fan bases that want to win the recruiting battle too. And they want the, yeah. the publicity that comes with all that. I, again, it's, it's not so much about recruiting as it is about evaluating. And so I think there's enough guys out there. And I think the key to all this is what I want from people that I deal with and what I'd like them to want from me is to be transparent and tell them what it is. I think before the transfer portal became what it is today, and you, and you lived it, you know, there was a lot of kids that always transferred. And I really believe one of the reasons that happened was I think coaches through the recruiting process promised things that they knew couldn't happen, one of them being playing time. I mean, I've never had a player. I've never promised a player you're going to play this. You know, Coach Sanderson in Alabama always had a comment. He said, hey, I have a bad habit of playing the best players. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the thing about it is if you're not honest with people up front, you're going to run into some problems. But uh, – so when what we've done and what we do, we if they want to go through the roster and uh, talk about playing time, uh, I've always told them the best players I've ever coached, they don't ask about playing time. They ask who am I going to play with because they fully expect that they're going to play and do their jobs. You've always coached in pretty good football schools, big-time football schools, actually. How have you used football to help your program, and how have you helped football at the schools you've been at? Well, I would say this, you know, I started out at George Mason, uh, when, you know, Davison first and then went to George Mason and, and neither one of those obviously are known for their football program. Then a year later, I go to Providence and uh, learned a lot about how big Northeastern basketball is. You go up in the Northeast corner up there. I mean, they love their basketball like people would not probably know unless you go up there and live it. And I was in an unbelievable fan base uh, at Providence, which I love the place. I love it. And I'm excited about Ken Mingus and the job he's going to do there. And, and they, the university, the college has changed in a lot of ways. But when I was there, you had to really manufacture visits. I mean, there wasn't a lot going on when, during the, uh, you know, the fall when you'd bring people in or the spring. And, and so the advantage of being at a football school, which we embrace, because you look around the country, I mean, you know, you and I are in the basketball world, but we know football is what this country thrives on now. And so if you don't embrace it, it's going to it's going to hurt you. And I've, I've been fortunate where every place I've been, I've worked for great ADs that have said to me, whatever you need to compete at the highest level, we're willing to do it. It wasn't like they were trying to hold anything back. And and that was a good been good, obviously, that you got support from the from your administration. And so you you got great visits. Take the Dalton Connect situation. You know, he came in here last spring during our spring football weekend, which the excitement around what Josh Heupel's done here and what our university the way has just grown so much with Randy Boyd and Donnie Plowman and Danny White now the A D. There was so much excitement and he left here then I think he was he had a visit I think planned to actually go to Indiana and then a week after that, I think go to North Carolina, but something happened where one of those visits got pushed back, but because of the, the, the visit here, he committed on Tuesday, I think. 
And so the excitement that you feel, you know, that, and again, that generated from people come to a spring football game. But I think it's sometimes when, uh, you know, at Clemson, you know, I, I was there when the football program was struggling. We went to three straight NCAA tournaments. That certainly helps. I think anytime any program in the athletic department is winning, it's it, it's good. Baseball was good during that time. And so when football's down, I can tell you this, when football's down, when you're at a place that is and, and I don't like to say football, you know, football schools. I think schools become what, where they're successful. I mean, you look at uh, Duke and North Carolina, where are they? Basketball schools, uh, you know, they've always been successful in basketball. I tell everybody back in the day when they used to say that Texas was a football school or even here, you know, Keenan Stadium on the campus of North Carolina and Wallace Wade at Duke, those football stadiums are bigger than Cameron and, and the uh, Dean Smith uh done you know it's uh it's just football is football and so you embrace it and know that it, it can help you as you're trying to build something i'm fascinated i don't have to deal with it you know but i am fascinated uh by guys your age you know uh your group patino just came out and man he went scorched earth over nil and ncaa enforcement this is pay for play you guys, you know, Roy got out, Jim Beheim got, guys got out, Mike got out. But where do you see this headed? Where do you see college basketball with NIL, particularly NIL, pay for play, contracts, that type of thing, coach? You've seen it all. Where do you see it headed? Well, again, Dan, you've been in it. And back in the day, we all knew programs that would you know, take a shortcut and, you know, the shortcut's always been the easiest way to do it. It might not be the right way, but it was probably always the easiest way. And now they're basically saying, okay, if you want to take the shortcut, it's legal. And do I think it can sustain the way it is today? Absolutely not. It can't. Uh, so what do I think is going to end up happening uh, somewhere along the way? I think, uh, it, the, I don't want to know if you'd call them employees at the university or is it going to be profit sharing or something, but the structure that it is here today can't happen. And, and, you know, you go back and look and you've seen it in our lifetime. It seems like people in the past that did things that got away with a lot. And, and oftentimes small schools got hit with stuff that and you're like, what is going on here? You know, let's get to the real crux of the problem. And the fact is the NCAA has never done that. And, uh, and I'm really talking the enforcement committee uh, decide of, because that's such a big operation out there. And, uh, but uh, the job that Danny Gavitt does with the tournament is, I mean, I, I don't think it can be done any better in terms of what they put into that three weeks that we all enjoy you know, during March Madness. But where it is today, it can't sustain. But uh, I will say this to you, and uh, you talk about the age, and this is being just as honest as I can be. Think about this. If we started recruiting, uh, as you know, sometimes you start recruiting sophomores and juniors and you spend a lot of money recruiting those guys and you don't get them. Whereas you go back to last year, we recruited Dalton Connect and Jordan Ganey in a matter of 10 days. And as you get older, that's pretty nice. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's pretty nice. You get, you get two impact players in 10 days, which sometimes you work years and don't come up. That's where I hope – uh, I would say the Kentucky fans should appreciate the work that John does do during recruiting because the guys he gets, believe me, he's put a lot of time into them. Connect surprise you how good he is? No, no, I've known John. You know, we, 
John and I worked at camp. We were at the pit camp in 1977. No, 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 no. Is Dalton, is uh, oh. Dalton connected? He's connected. Has he surprised oh, yeah. you how good oh, he is? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. You know, we knew we, we knew we knew we needed to add scoring. And obviously we got a break with, you know, with Justin Ganey being my associate head coach and who's an unbelievable coach. You know, he could have left last year for some jobs, but he stayed. And Jordan, his son, you know, led the nation in – three-point field goal shooting as a freshman and getting him here was, was something that we wanted to do, obviously, but uh, Dalton came in and uh, are we, first of all, the first game we played, we had an exhibition game against Michigan State and I truly was shocked at how much effort he put into the defense and uh, offensively, did we know he could go get some things done like this? Well, he does because we see it in practice with him some. And, uh, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he does that. But now he's learning how to adjust to different defenses. Everybody's playing him different. And he's, and he's learning to adjust to, as you know, the media scrutiny that's under him right now. I mean, there's, I mean, every day somebody wants to talk to him. And he's such a very humble human being. And, and, uh, but can you imagine all at once what's been thrown at him? And, and, he, and he has worked hard at trying to stay focused on what he needs to do. But, you know, as a head coach too, Dan, how many times we'd sit back in that locker room before the game, just hoping we got we'd make a shot, right? Want to make a shot tonight? And he is a guy that I think gives us confidence that we got a chance to do that. Coach, I'm gonna let you go, man. Congratulations on all your success, not only here but but over the years. Uh, it's just it's really been fun. Like I said, I don't know you, but I follow you and I root for you just because of the. Well, frankly, because 100 years ago, instead of snaking around with a kid named Malcolm Sims, you called me and said, hey, this kid's trying to transfer. And we're like, ah. And I always appreciated that, you know, because, it, I don't know, in coaching, sometimes guys aren't exactly like that. It's a little thing, but it mattered to me and it mattered to Coach Knight. And I've always rooted for you, Coach. So I thank you for coming well, on. Uh, hey, I, hey, do I have time to tell you one Coach Knight story? Do, yeah. Do you have time or not? Yeah. I got to yes. tell you, you know, when he went to, when he went to Texas Tech and I, and you know, back in 1980, I, I was an assistant coach at George Mason and coach Knight had those three day, you know, those on campus clinics like out there. And I went out yeah. there when they were doing, doing that. And, uh, you know, I always followed coach and I did everything I could as a young coach to study him and him and Dean Smith and guys like that. But when coach came to Texas Tech, he and I got really close and, uh, he, uh, you know, he did a wonderful thing one night, gave me a, a little plaque of when he won, set the record for most wins. But afterwards, he had retired, and Pat had moved on to Lamar. He called me one day, and he said, he said, hey, I want you to come out here, Lubbock. He said, I want to teach you how to coach offense. And I said, okay. I said, if I can come spend some time with you. So I flew out to Lubbock, and we met at Wild Wings, and he had on a Lamar cap inside, and I didn't think anything about it. And the next morning, he has a little gym that he's got set up for us to go to with a couple of people to come over. We're, we're going to walk through the, you know, his passing game. And um, Gerald Myers, who hired him there, came in and said, ask Bob why he's wearing a hat. And, of course, I would never call Coach Bob. But I said, Coach, why are you wearing that cap? And he said, well, he said, a night, I think he – didn't he go to Indiana in 1971? Is that when it was? Somewhere in there? Yeah, yeah. And he said yeah. that he had to get a hair – he had to get a haircut. And he said that um, – he went downtown in Bloomington. He said it took him three hours 
he came back and told people, I'm never going to get a haircut. And he said, I went out and bought some clippers myself. He said, since 1971, I have been cutting my own hair. And he said, I've told Pat and Tim how much money I've saved through the years. And they all think about doing it themselves. And he said, well, I came home from a hunting trip last week. And he said, for some reason, Karen took my guard off my clipper and I did what I've done since 1971. I took go straight down the <laughs> middle of my hair. And he had totally buzzed top of his hair. He looked like the guy on the, you know, the three stooges with the hair on the side, but yeah. nothing in the middle. And he looked at me, he said, coach, he said, he said, this haircut was, you know, a week ago. So he literally buzzed himself right down the middle of three swipes. And stuff. <laughs> but I, you know what, uh, you played for him and I, I, I loved him to death. And he, uh, he was, he was really good to me. And I, that's something I appreciate having a chance to coach against him because I learned a lot in the end coaching against him. And, uh, I miss him, and uh, which I think a lot of people obviously do. But uh, his impact on the game certainly impacted my era in a way that people probably don't understand. But thanks Coach, for having I me. I appreciate you. you. Coach, yeah. I, I got to ask you before you leave. I used to have, when I was at Bowling Green, and we were pretty good for the first four or five years running motion. So I had Amaker and Jim O'Brien and all these staffs come over and you know, they wanted to run motion offense, right? So, you know, guys spend a few weeks or days and whatever, and they would call me and go, yeah, screw this. You know, this is too much. Balls are flying. So you get done with Coach Knight. You go through motion. You go, did you use it or did you realize this is a pain in the ass to coach? Well, here's what I learned. I'm going to tell you, I sat down with him, and when I did the same stuff, I've always in practice – you know, I threw a lot of stuff out there because I want to be able to guard a lot of different things. But I asked him, I said, uh, Coach, one thing that has always impressed me about you, because wherever he would do a clinic when I was a young assistant coach or even head coach, I would go because I wanted to learn his motion offense. I wanted to learn, learn it. And I said to him one day, I said, what you said, I said, everybody comes to you, but you seem like you're not afraid to tell people exactly what you're doing. And you know him, so but it seemed like in clinics he gave really coaches what he what he was doing. And I said, Does that concern you when you're competing against him? He said, Not at all. He said, one, I believe in it. And he said, two, no one can teach it better than me. <laughs> there's some truth to that. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of yeah, there's a ton of truth. Uh, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts. You know, on yeah. him. He and I had a falling out late, but that was over ESPN stuff. I loved playing for him. I loved working for him. Uh, anyway, I appreciate your thoughts on that. Coach, good luck, man. Thanks for coming All on. Right, it's thanks. fun as heck. All right. Thanks, Dan. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye. Take God bless you as well. That's the great Rick Barnes. What a fantastic job our staff did getting Coach Barnes on. I could talk to that man all day. I swear to God, though, I did. I thought Coach Barnes was a New York guy. And my phone rang, and I picked it up, and then he, with the southern draw, he goes, hey, Dan, this is Rick Barnes. Uh, Clemson, I think, at the time, and he goes, I just want you to know that uh, one of your players reached out to us, Malcolm Sims, about transfer. And I'm like, really? Oh, this really Coach Barnes? Huh, maybe. All right, if you say it is. Uh, we got woke and dope. Should we do it? Let's do it. You guys built it. Let's run it. Let's go. Oh, man, there he is. The illegal immigrant that caused all kind of problems, went to jail and just flipped off America. And I'm guaranteeing you, old senile, 
our imbecile in chief is giving him what? Probably the Presidential Medal of Honor as he flips all of us off. That is two guys right there. One, an illegal immigrant. One, a lying Delawarean that are both flipping off the great country that is the United States of America. Next. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly right. Vote here. That's right. That's why these guys are in here. Look at our guy. This has everything. The air traffic controller moving people over to vote. Over here. Come on. We're letting you in this country. We're giving you five grand. We're giving you an Obama phone. Vote for the old man on the bicycle. The nice old man, according to our friend Greg Doyle. Just a nice old man. Why do you think these guys are let in? Next. Well, it's Groundhog Day again, according, however, Punxsutawney Phil has identified as a non-climate change alarmist and is lawyering up. Hey, man, don't make Punxsutawney Phil lawyer up. He's just a rat that comes out and tells you nothing, nothing. I'll tell you right now, I'll give you an update on the weather. It's beautiful here in Indianapolis. Hey, look, uh, if you're interested, 1430.com is the app. Download it. I'm going off. I am. I'm going off on Indiana basketball. All things local over there. I'm going off noon to three. Uh, it's going to be insanity. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be nuts. It's going to be fireball. Get the sad out. Stay here for all your best shows. Nick and Nick, thank you. Dylan, can't thank you enough. Of course, Aaron. Our leader, Gary, our leader. Have a great, great afternoon. I'm on 1430. See you tomorrow.